Welcome to Alumni Voices, a podcast series from Oxford University. I'm Guy Collander, and every month I speak to a former student about their career and memories of their alma mater. In this podcast, we will find out about both sides of the tutorial system. Our interviewee, Dr. Maria Misra, studied at Oxford before forging her successful academic career here at the university. She is an Associate Professor of Modern History and a Fellow of Keble College, and she specialises in the history of India and the British Empire. Dr. Maria Misra, thank you very much for joining us. Your connections with Oxford began when you read PPE, Philosophy, Politics and Economics, at Christchurch. What topics grabbed your attention as an undergraduate? Uh, well, I actually came up to do English um, and then changed to PPE. Right, right. So I've always uh, been rather kind of uh, promiscuous, I suppose, when it comes to my uh, my academic disciplines. I guess with PPE, um, I, I like the politics and the philosophy uh, sides of it more than the economics. And uh, I suppose it was when I did PPE that I was introduced to imperial history. Uh, and very, very old kind of classic debates uh, about, uh, you know, whether or not empire was a, a good or a bad thing. And I suppose the other thing that I enjoyed about the course was the political ideas and political theory. And uh, I'm interested in uh, history and power, I suppose. So that, that grabbed me. And how did your interests evolve more towards the historical subjects? Because obviously now you're teaching history, not PPE. Well, it was all, it was probably the history side of PPE. PPE's changed a lot, and 30 years ago, the the politics side I think was very different to the kind of uh, courses that are, are offered now. And uh, actually, quite a lot of those courses were historical. I did quite a bit of British history and international history, um, but I was interested in my own heritage, I suppose. Um, my father was Indian, and uh, I became you know curious about investigating that. And uh, when I decided to to do a doctorate, uh, it seemed obvious to do something that related both my British and Indian past. And what was your doctorate about? My doctorate looked at the relations between uh, British and Indian businessmen in the late colonial period, uh, more in the 20th century than the 19th century, uh, because Indian business started to become very successful, particularly after the First World War. Uh, And I was quite interested in uh, how British business responded to that, uh, whether it was positive or negative, uh, what role racial attitudes played and other cultural attitudes played. And echoes of that in the debates today between um, Indian business leaders and, and uh, British ones. As oh, well. absolutely, yes, mm. yeah, yes. I think I think in, Indians, some Indians have long memories. I think others don't don't care very much about the the colonial past, but I think some of them do, and I think it does influence uh, their attitudes. Yeah. And did your study of PPE foster an appreciation of the importance of studying multiple disciplines? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, I've never been able to settle down. Uh, in my in my in my disciplinary approach, and the great thing about history, of course, is that you can sort of you know you can you can you can you know you can do sociology sociology uh, as an approach. You can look at economics. You can look at ideology. You can look at literature. And one of one of my main optional papers that I teach is actually a, a history of Anglo-Indian literature and its relationship to the history of Indian nationalism. So I I think that's one of the great strengths of history that it, it enables you to uh, to operate across disciplines. And you've. Taught modern history at Keyboard since 1996. 
Did you ever imagine that you'd be setting and marking essays as well as writing them? No, no, no. Um, I mean, I think that, again, things have changed just as the PPE course has changed. I think uh, what it's like to be a student has changed a lot. And and 30 years ago, uh, some people were very careerist, but I didn't think a lot about what I would do as a career. And um, I suppose that's part of the reason that I decided to do research. But uh, no, I I, I didn't set out with the intention of of doing that, really, no. But very much uh, rooted in Oxford, all your experiences, academic experiences. Not entirely. I did a little bit of teaching uh, when I was younger at Birmingham University and Coventry Polytechnic, as it then was. Uh, So, um, yes, I'm afraid I am rather uh, of an Oxford product. But um, yes, I have have done my bit a little elsewhere. And I would like now to turn to some of your research and how it relates to contemporary India. You emphasised India's pluralism, diversity and its peculiar form of modernity in Vishnu's crowded temple. India since the Great Rebellion. Much has happened since your book was published. In 2014, the divisive politician Narendra Modi became Prime Minister in India. Is India's pluralism and diversity under threat? Well, I think ever since India became independent, there have been uh, there's been a tension between the extraordinary diversity of Indian culture and the pressures towards unity as well. I mean, I think Indian history, perhaps even for longer than that, perhaps across the whole, uh, you know, time of Indian history, has been one of cycles of, of unity and diversity. Uh, I, I think that a, a, an extremely tense uh, and, and unpleasant politics developed in the mid eighties around the revival of uh, what's called a Hindu national identity, uh, which targeted Muslims and Christians and other minority groups. Uh, and that politics was very destructive. I, I think it peaked in around about 2000, 2002. Uh, and uh, it's very unfortunate that Narendra Modi, of course, was involved in, uh, well, he was the chief minister of Gujarat at the time of, of the, the riots there. Um, But I think there is a a sense that that is uh, now in diminution, that that cycle uh, of of crisis, if you like. Uh, So I I don't really think that Indian unity and diversity is under threat, but I do think that there are groups in India who have a pretty tough time and a pretty rough deal, and uh, and Muslims are one of them. uh, And I don't think under this government we're we're going to see much progress on that. And most recently with the protests about beef consumption and and so on. It's quite a a difficult time for India at the moment. Well, uh, there is a a long-standing politics there, a popular politics which stresses Hindu identity. It goes back to the 19th century uh, and and which periodically would organise popular movements around things like cow protection Uh, They're often about other things, if I can put it like that. They often reflect economic tensions, for example. There's a a, a tension over the links that some Muslims have with Gulf states, which make them uh, wealthy or, or allow them to become socially mobile in a way that some Hindu groups disapprove of. Um, but but the BJP is a party. It's a divided party. I mean, it doesn't entirely. You know, that much of the leadership is is in, always, in a sense, trying to distance itself from the more radical identity politics of some of its members. Not all of them, certainly. Uh, but it's it's not an absolutely ideologically unified movement. And the global power dynamics of the twenty first century are very different to the colonial era. European leaders today are courting Indian businesses and India's multinationals are growing from strength to strength. 
How are the links between the West and the East likely to evolve in the next generation? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, clearly, both China and India are emerging uh, as much, much more powerful entities on the world stage uh, than they were at the end of of the Second World War. Uh, China obviously has been more successful at organising and mobilising its economy. Uh, India, because of its diversity, has has more difficulty with that and is some way behind it. But I think that the, generally uh, this, this momentum will continue uh, and these states, along with others, will continue to become more important. Uh, and that will affect uh, the way that certain international organisations like the World Bank and the IMF operate. Uh, The Chinese are already making waves with things like the Asian Development Bank and challenging uh, American dominance uh, of the international economy. Uh, So I think that that will certainly continue. But of course, you know, the eclipse of these two extraordinary states by European power took a very long time. Uh, And I I guess their re-emergence as as dominant powers globally will also take a very long time. Um, So I'm not expecting an immediate change around. In, in global politics, no. And what would you predict in terms of the UK-India relationship in the years ahead? I think at the moment, um, we've talked about Modi. Uh, I think the election of Modi is, is not particularly good for Britain. Um, and I think this is something that, you know, something that historians can probably get at a little bit more than, than journalists and reporters. Because the BJP historically as a party is more anti-imperialist, ironically, uh, than the Congress party, or certainly more anti-British. Uh, and Modi has a, a, a history of grandstanding uh, on, on anti-British platforms, particularly over the so-called mutiny, the rebellion and the mutiny. Uh, and he's coming to Britain and, and big efforts have been made to woo him. But I think it's interesting that, that, that at the moment, I would say this government and Osborne particularly are more successful at wooing the Chinese. The Chinese are having a big uh, 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 sovereign uh, fund offering here in London and I think that's a big coup for Osborne. I don't think until the government changes in India um, that Britain will have a major breakthrough there. I, I think there is there is bad blood. And also uh, student visas, the whole issue there. Absolutely, right? absolutely, that's right. That that is a, that is a crying shame really. Um, because you know Modi and, and the BJP will go eventually, uh, and, and other parties will will become the government. But but you know for a long time, one of the things that sustained the relationship was the the exchange of students. Many Indian students coming here, many of them staying on to work here at least part of the time. So that is an extremely myopic policy, and one that causes a great deal of pain in India. Your research interests also extend to Sri Lanka, where you are analysing the South Asian Buddhist revival. What insights have you uncovered so far? Oh, well, um, I'm interested uh, more generally, I think, in looking at the way that South Asia's own intellectual cultures shape its contemporary politics. Uh, And I've just published an article on an extraordinary uh, 3rd century BC text called the Arthashastra, uh, which uh, was written during the time of uh, Ashoka Maurya, who is thought to have been a Buddhist, uh, a 3rd century BC emperor of India at the time of Alexander the Great or just after Alexander the Great. 
Uh, and I'm interested, I suppose, in the way that Buddhist ideas are used in modern politics, both Sri Lankan politics and Indian South Asian politics more generally. The Arthashastra itself uh, has been called a, a kind of uh, an Indian Machiavelli, and uh, that may be unfair in some ways, but what we should reflect on, of course, it was written, uh, you know, about, you know, um, what should we say, 1800 years before Machiavelli. It's a very, very secular piece of political theory. So I'm interested, I suppose, in how very ancient ideas and texts get reinterpreted in the periods of modern nationalism. So the revival of Buddhism comes in the 1880s, is absolutely driven from Sri Lanka. It's much more part of Sri Lankan national awakening than it is Indian national awakening. However, it was by the 30s and 40s something that Indians like Nehru particularly were becoming very interested in. So I'm interested in that exchange of ideas among South Asia Asian and Southeast Asian states in the in the mid 20th century. And in June next year, you'll be the trip scholar during a guided tour of Sri Lanka for Oxford alumni. Um, I imagine you'll be covering many of these topics then. What sort of highlights will you be showing and explaining to the group in the summer of, of 2016? Well, it is a wonderful tour, though I, I say it myself. It's called Spectacular Ceylon, and it absolutely is. Uh, I think it's a wonderful introduction to the entire history. Uh, of the island uh, from its uh, ancient Sinhalese origins. Uh, people on the trip will be visiting the uh, amazing ruined city of Anuradhapura, which I think is comparable to uh, uh, Angkor Wat uh, uh, and uh, is extraordinary first millennium city. Uh, I think that there is the highlight of the tour is probably the great UNESCO site. There are several UNESCO sites they'll be covering, but I suppose the most dramatic is the Sigiriya Rock Fortress, which is uh, really spectacular. They'll be seeing a great deal of Buddhist art uh, from the 3rd century BC right up until the 18th century, so they'll be seeing how Buddhist art changes. Uh, but we'll also be visiting the centres of Portuguese and Dutch colonial influence. Uh, and uh, people will get a sense, I suppose, of how Western culture interacts with Sri Lankan culture. Uh, and then on top of all of that, as if that weren't enough, uh, they'll be going to a very famous national park where they can see leopards, birds, elephants. So it really is a wonderful tour. And what are you h hoping to gain from leading the tour? Well, uh, I love visiting South Asia, uh, so so I uh, can't go enough myself. I don't care how many times I go. I love I love seeing these places. Uh, and I enjoy communicating with people. I mean, I think it's a privilege for me to be able to study uh, these places. Uh, and I think that scholars have a responsibility uh, where they can to disseminate these ideas. Uh, and I think it's great that, that ex-Oxford and sometimes Cambridge people even come on these trips, uh, get, get a chance to, uh, to, to, to carry on with their intellectual interests and their academic interests. So I've done these trips before. Uh, I've always found them hugely stimulating. It's very interesting to hear uh, non-specialists take, just as it is always, of course, to hear one's students' uh, reactions uh, to, 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 to things that one is, is more of a specialist in. So that, I suppose. Dr Maria Misra, thank you very much for sharing your experiences at Oxford and for telling us about your research. For more information about the 2016 tour to Sri Lanka and for more information about the Alumni Office, please visit www.alumni.ox.org.